And sometimes the hard way I've learned, you don't plan India. India plans you. Maybe this is true in life in general. Recently, someone asked me, so how do we know if our plans are the right plans? I believe it is when life begins to flow without obstruction that we can trust our plan is resonating with the divine plan. I can truly say for once in my life, these two plans are finally in sync and the path is definitely illuminated. It's hard to decide how to introduce Nicole Jacquie, today's podcast guest. Do I start by describing her as a New York City seasoned multimedia producer and educator, or a humble practicing yogi regularly living in the India Himalayan mountains for the past eight years, or the dazed hippie chick slash photography philosophy major I knew back in our undergraduate days at Lake Forest College? Even after our conversation, I still don't know. But I do sense that to put a title on her or attempt to fit her into any neat little box would do her wrong. My desire to interview Nicole came from following her on social media. Rather than the political or check out how awesome my life is fluff that dominates Facebook, Nicole's posts were real to me, or at least encouraging me to be more real. Meditation, Indian culture immersion, and authenticities were her topics of choice. It's odd who remains and reemerges in one's 40s. Our conversation begins by recounting a classic nomad misconnection. In 2017, Nicole had returned to the States and was working in the western Massachusetts Berkshires at Race Brook Lodge. I was on one of my typical regional walkabouts and tried to connect with her. It didn't work out, but we both remained curious about each other's paths. The conversation shifts to Nicole's India experience, starting with her 2015 essay, which describes her unexpected path. Our talk meanders through much of her life there, covering her time producing a documentary, filming the sacred ritual of a woman's initiation into the oldest order of Dasnami sannyasis, and living in ashrams. Lastly, we turn our attention to discussing the westernization of yoga. Though we both see the benefit of the practice spreading into the capitalistic West, is what's being taught true to its Indian roots? It's not a clear answer. Nicole leaves us with some simple guidance on how to bring a more authentic form of yoga into our daily lives. Simple, but not easy. I've already deviated from most of her advice. Practice, not perfection. So settle in for this long conversation with a true nomad. One that left me with more questions that I started with. You can just start. I roll with it, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So, you know, I'm really curious. I'm, I'm really curious what your reaction is or was to when I was rolling around Massachusetts and we were trying to hook up, you know, and get together. Mm. And then I called you and, and I was like, you know, what's going on? And you're like, oh, I had to work and I have to work. And so I'm not gonna be able to get together. Yeah. And then I was like, all right, well, I'm out of here and I'm gonna go hang out with my mom instead of hanging out with you. I, I'm just kind of curious what your reaction was. <laughs> Normal, I don't know, that thing. Um, I tend to live life without expectations, like whatever's going on is going on. So 
Yeah. And I recognize in now this is my second time coming back to States after um, starting to live in India since 2010. And most of my friends and family have a difficult time with my um, lack of planning in the sense of just kind of going with the flow of whatever's happening, they, you know, when you coming, when you coming, when you coming, I don't know. I'm just, you know, and then I have a few days, like how even I thought one of the things actually I thought was cool is like, yeah, I would be friends with that guy again, because I remember you just like, yeah, I was curious, like, wow, he, there's this guy, he's just like cruising around in his car in his car. And um, yeah, that spontaneity of, um, you know, also like you didn't seem bummed out that I got all of a sudden busy and you're like, all right, switch your plans, no problem. And it didn't, yeah, I had no reaction because it just seemed like a very normal thing, you know? Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I think there was a, um, I guess over the, the last couple of years of, of seeing your posts and um, having some interaction with you on social media, I, I too kind of gathered that you were on a different pathway and trying to trying to just do things differently. And so it, it was it was there there was a little bit of insecurity on my part at that particular moment that she must think that I'm a flake or she must think that I'm crazy. You know. Oh, no way. No, no. Yeah, no, but I, I mean, it, it just, um, I don't know. It was that, that I was, it's really cool to hear your, your experience with that. Um, for whatever reason, it, it's just been on my mind that, you know, cause I, I just distinctly remember calling you, you letting me know that like, oh, my, my, my plans are a little bit different than I thought. And, and then I was like, well, I'm just going to go, you know, drive another three hours to see my mom. Cause that's mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. And I remember you just saying, wow, you move around a lot, don't you? <laughs> That's That was your response to me. And I was like, yeah. But it was coming from more of an impressed point of view than a, what a weirdo. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. more like, oh, yeah, I get it. That's awesome. And are you are you working or were you working at the time? Or you do some sort of nomad digital stuff that you can just be on the go? Or were you taking time off? or? What at the time, happening? at the time, I was I was living in Virginia, and I was working with my sister for mm -hmm. my sister. It's a really long story. I'll, I'll, let me see if I can I can break it down simply. Mm. So, my sister, she was exiting the army, and she was going through a transition in her life where she was definitely struggling. She's a surgeon. Um, she's a mom. She's got two kids. And so she was going through a transition. And I was in a place where I could go and help her. So I ended up moving from Colorado mm -hmm. to, uh, to help her with that transition. Cool. And so I, I essentially became like Craigie Poppins, like taking care of her kids and <laughs> helping out in whatever way. So at that particular moment when I was trying to hook up with you, I was just going on a little walkabout up to New Hampshire and Vermont from Virginia and mm -hmm. upstate New York. Yeah. Just because I, I just, I'm just a nomad wanderer at heart and I, I just needed that. And so 
anyway, I was on my way back to Virginia at the point that I was trying to hook up with you. Yeah. But there, there was kind of like this own, there, it was like an emotional sojourn that I was on. Yeah. I mean, being, you know, being a, being an adult in his forties and not, I didn't feel like I was doing good things at that time, if that makes any sense. Like I didn't feel like I was being very productive. Like mm -hmm. the really, it, it was a transition period for me. And so at that moment when I was trying to coordinate with you, there was a lot of like anxiety that I was experiencing. Like, like I didn't feel like I was being productive. Mm. And so like, I didn't feel like I, like, you know, you know, that I don't know if you've experienced it, but oftentimes when I'm uncomfortable on the inside and I'm experiencing anxiety, it's hard for me to stay in one place and just sit around. And so I was, I was moving around so much to kind of combat my own internal unrest. So the thought, the thought of like just hanging out for several hours while waiting for you to, to get off from work. It's like, no I mean, way. Uh, I was like, I, I, I can't do that. Like, it's cool. I understand like plans change like on your side, but I'm like, yeah, this I, isn't going to work right now. I think I remember that night we had, um, to deal with like, uh, it was like a last minute, they needed me um, making pizzas for like a wedding party kind of a thing. And it was a late night. I think I was working until like three in the morning easy. So yeah. It worked out then. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, I don't, I don't know if you've got a chance to, to, to look at in detail at the, the, some of the Facebook messages that I sent to you, but I'm, I, I was hoping that you might be willing to read that one post that you put up in 2015. So it starts out five years ago today. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you're talking. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought, I thought that that would be a cool one, just because it's it's a few years ago, and uh -huh. it certainly sounds like a milestone for you. Uh -huh. um, and I also thought so. It's it kind of like points toward what was going on in the past, but I also know, I also know by following you that again, things have, it's not as though that's a static moment in time and you've grown since then and your priorities have changed since then. So anyway, I just thought it would be kind of a cool place to start and I can kind of, you know, a little, uh, in medias race. Let's keep it for the listeners. Like, yeah, this was written, I mean, I posted in January 2024, uh, 2015, and I arrived in India um, in January 2010. And it's, yeah, it was probably on the 24th of January 2010 when I arrived. So could be that I started drafting this a few days before um, and with the intention to post it then. Um, the feature photo in the uh, article is like... Um, Living at that ashram, Central Spodi Ashram, one of the things is uh, I got to take all their classes. I was writing, doing their website, so they, in order to write descriptions of the courses, then I have to take the courses. And so this is like a picture from my 500-hour teacher training. 
Um, so yeah, let's see. Five years ago today, January 24th, having cleared my debts, student loans and credit cards, quit my job running a community multimedia center and packed up my material belongings to fit into a small room of boxes, I arrived in India for the fifth time, this time without a return ticket. I happily traded the concrete New York City jungle of convenience for the real Himalayan jungle, where I've cut firewood to heat water for a warm bath, washed my clothes in a bucket, hanged them on a line to dry, and sometimes gone months without social media. I've bounced between living in ashrams with sannyasis, staying in caves at pilgrimage places, living in ashrams with meditating, collaborating teachers where we co-ran a school of over 100 students, KG to 8th, where I've learned to maintain a constant awareness of my breath. I've finally made peace with my past, forgiving my father in person, letting go of the luggage of my childhood, accepting he is no longer the man who did or didn't do all that, realizing that man no longer exists, allowing myself to meet him again as if for the first time as new. I then further bounced between living among 23 people aged 7 to 37. I was the 37-year-old, by the way. <laughs> in a modest house nestled in the Indian Himalayas in the Garhwal region of Uttarakhand, where we meditated, farmed, composed, cooked, swam, hiked, made music, sang, danced, painted, drew and ran a holistic education experiment, i.e. alternative homeschool together, where I was taught alongside the most incredibly wise school children to look at myself, listen to myself, and truly understand myself. And I was forced to face my Americanness, much of which as seen in the mirror of them, I was eager to shed. All of this preparing myself once more for hosting an international camp during the Kumamela doing seva in a junior Karta ashram where I was the only woman and only foreigner, where I learned to let go of my feminist ego, learned the art and felt the compassion of Indian hospitality through serving guests, doing seva at a Vipassana center, guiding foreigners through their first major inner journey, dot, dot, dot. Uh, however amazing, I'm becoming more settled than bouncing between all of that. So I, yeah, I've had this kind of pendulum concept that I'm not sure if I wrote about in this, but in another piece, I talked about that a lot. So I'll go on to read. Uh, Today, I reflect on these past five years. I'm reminded my original intention was to continue working on a documentary film that got its birth during the 2001 Mahakuma Mela, or produce a book with potential publishers even lined up and waiting. That's what we do in America. We set professional goals with intentions to become someone having produced something substantial to show off to the world. But I was, as I replay in my mind the scenes of this film, this novel, my own story unfolds. All that has happened to me in these past five years, incidents, struggles, purges, rebirths, I realize I've created something far more substantial than any motion picture light show that can be projected on a wall far more substantial than any expensive hardcover table book or coffee table book. In five years time, I've recreated myself. And as the search for good characters becomes a search for good gurus, the lesson gets deeper and deeper with the filmmaker, photographer, writer, myself. 
get so engrossed in being present in the moment, soaking up all the wisdom I can digest that actually doing sadhana begins to take precedence over documenting it. The past 10 months, I found a balance in the extremes. I've once bounced between and began traveling down my personal middle path. I've shifted to Santosh Bodhi Ashram among guests who speak my mother tongue and with the opportunity to share my 15 years experience navigating this incredibly deep spiritual culture, after years of self-practice, I finally completed my 500-hour Hatha Yoga teacher training. This week, I begin my next chapter teaching here at the ashram. Um, yeah, I guess, and also in the in the post itself, there's a link to like another post that's a poem that I had written like a few years before this essay, but we'll skip it. Uh, as I rediscover India through fresh eyes of all these foreign guests, I begin to notice, however, too, I am a foreigner. I'm not so foreign as most. After five years in this country, most of the time avoiding hanging out with foreigners and truly trying to assimilate into the culture as much as possible, now I can see in the mirror of them that I have indeed shed a great deal of my previous cultural conditioning and recognize that only once we clean the lenses can we view the world, however crazy this India may seem to those uh, first timers, as it is not through the Western eyes that assume we know best how it should be. As I attempt to recall the scenes in my own story, I'm realizing the power of thoughts manifesting reality power of repetitious expressions of gratitude, manifesting miracles, enlightening my correct path. And as I reflect back, I realize I've designed everything around me. From my daydreams and muses captured in a zillion notebook pages, it's already been written. And sometimes the hard way I've learned, you don't plan India. India plans you. Maybe this is true in life in general. Recently, someone asked me, so how do we know if our plans are the right plans? I believe it is when life begins to flow without obstruction that we can trust our plan is resonating with the divine plan. I can truly say for once in my life, these two plans are finally in sync and the path is definitely illuminated. Through this inner journey I'm on of sadhana, in parentheses, or in, yeah, uh, Seva, asana, pranayam, vipassana, meditations, vadyaya. These are kind of the things that I get involved in. I've come to know some real truths about life. I've come to understand how one needs to be still in order to truly listen to others and why one needs to be silent on top of that in order to truly listen to oneself. And such, and as such, I have begun to trust that I can find all the answers I need inside once I can get myself to that place of silent stillness. I've come to deeply understand a yogi is not just someone who can twist their body and hold it into odd positions long enough to click selfies and become Instagram famous. Through my practice, I realize all this stretching, twisting, holding myself into odd positions is actually a method for me to transcend duality moving beyond the preferences of likes and dislikes, beyond craving and aversion, beyond comfort and discomfort, ultimately to have a balanced mind in all situations. I've discovered the ultimate inner truth-bearing emotional barometer that is my own breath. It is by swimming to the depth of our own ocean that we find inner calmness. 
Those who struggle among the waves to stay afloat at the surface only perpetuate their struggle by being the very cause of their ocean's turbulence. This past year has seemed to be the culmination of several years of purification since I had arrived five years ago today. It is through this purification that the lenses have a clearer view and the connection to the, to the divine, the fine-tuned intuition is possible. And I've once again realized I must surrender to the plan, in quotes, accepting what opportunities have been put in front of me, accepting my dharma duty to do my karma work, trust that everything is going as it should and be grateful for how well it's going. Here's to seeing the world from a totally new perspective. Thank you all who have been on made, on this journey with me. You know who you are. Om namo narayan. So, and uh, interesting, uh, the one of the pictures in the oh yeah, the main picture. It's me in Ustrasana. So this cam, I think they call it in English camel pose, and I'm looking upside down. I have, like bending my back behind me, looking upside down. So yeah, it's like what's funny about this post is every year since then I try to revise it and I've never gotten to the point of actually getting anywhere where I felt like I could post it like it just wasn't articulate enough to post it and and I think even every year before this because so what happened in 2009 maybe in October I finished paying my student loan I didn't have any credit card debt. I had a pretty stable teaching job. And um, so I was just like, for a couple months, I was, you know, just banking money. And, and I was going to India more or less every three years anyway um, for this Kumbh Mela, this um, festival. This, that's a whole nother longer story. But so I was going every three years. And that three-year point was about to come up in 2010 was going to be the next festival in Haridwar. So I quit my job like usual. Usually I would quit the job and then they would bring me back um, when I would return. So this time I thought, okay, I'm going to take, I got a sublet for one year and I thought, let's see how it goes for one year. At that point before I had only stayed in India, the longest would be seven years, seven months. So I thought, let's try one year. And uh, this also came to mind when you were talking about being in a place in your life where you felt you were not being useful or productive. So I had, you know, a typical uh, tourist, a foreigner in India, like we're there six months. That's the limit. And so, uh, you know, you can easily make, uh, you know, have a great time cruising around for six months, but then at a at six months, um, because usually you're supposed to leave the country and some other things happened that I was able to stay. But right about seven or eight months, I started to feel that restlessness of like, now what am I doing? The festival had long been finished and I was hanging out in the same town where the festival was going on. I was living in an ashram, but in the ashram there was not much happening. Um, as far as a daily routine, there was no yoga classes or anything. I was just doing my own study and doing a lot of um, karma yoga, like just uh, cleaning, cooking. Actually, at that point, I wasn't even yet allowed in the kitchen. I was cleaning a lot of stuff and serving meals. 
Um, but I was getting like restless and I looked online for um, an idealist.org. I used to find lots of teaching jobs and I found a teaching position at a school in the mountains and applied. But because I was not a native Hindi speaker, they didn't want me for the teaching position, but they brought me on to do curriculum stuff and web. I ended up doing web design and other things for them. Um, so I stayed, um, yeah, I, I started that, that was one step to another school and that was one step to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then it's like, you end up, I ended up staying for almost seven months. And so that essay was like every year I kept thinking, oh, I've been here a whole year now. I want to write something. I'm going to post like a collection of photos from this year and write something. But it just never would come. And at that time in 2015, I had now lived at uh, that first ashram I was talking about off and on. I had lived at two different schools, one school for like two and a half years. Um, and all those three places surrounded by mostly non-English speakers. At the first school, it was a little more bilingual, but at the other school, I was two and a half years with people who barely spoke English, only the English that I was supposed to be teaching them. And I never taught English before. I was not uh, a very good English teacher at that time. And then I got back to uh, the other ashram in Haridwar. And then by 2014, I started um, living at this um, Santosh Podi ashram, which is also in Haridwar, but where all the foreigners go. And it's like a yoga retreat place. And I had, knew, I had known the Mataji for a long time, and she had passed away in February of that year. And there, she has three children, and they, they're now grown up, like in their 30s and early 40s, and they invited me to move, move in and help them out. And so it was a big turning point for me to, one, allow myself to hang out with foreigners because I was kind of a snob for so long. Like, I didn't come to India to hang out with a bunch of Videshis. I wanted to... Uh, learn the language and learn really assimilate. So I really chose to live in places that were not as nice, but um, for the sake of surrounding myself with people that didn't speak English. And so at that point, um, yeah, I had just really, it was like a big chapter turner to go live in that ashram. And um, I had like, all of a sudden I start, um, it was more of an out. I think more things started to come up because I was able to speak in English and express myself again. Whereas uh, I had some moments um, in some of the other places I lived where internally, mentally was really difficult because I didn't have, uh, basically I convinced myself that my language skills were not that great and then I might get misunderstood. And so I created a fear-based wall to inhibit myself from expressing all the things that I was going through when we're sitting two hours in the morning and sitting two hours in the evening and I had all kinds of stuff coming up. Um, so to then move into that ashram where I was all of a sudden surrounded by English speakers again, even you know a lot of Europeans and everything, but basically most everyone spoke English. And then like more things came out to express and I had a little bit, I had internet access, which I didn't have uh, living in the Himalayas of those days. 
so then yeah I was like oh I'm gonna try to blog and uh yeah I wrote that piece and gosh like to look at it again it's funny so like I said I tried uh, when I came back to the states in 2016 I tried to revise this from the because coming back to America after almost seven years it was really intense culture shock and even now I'm back again for a few months and it's I'm feel a little bit more stable but it still is like there's a lot of things I'm like whoa 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 <laughs> um but yeah like this was pretty much now I'm kind of scrolling skimming and scrolling through this essay and it's it is it's like there was like the the kind of gist of what I had learned so far like it almost now reads to me like some bullet points of like um yeah like especially like the the concept of this plan like you don't plan india india plans you yeah i loved that line and what i had a hard time with when i first came back in 2000 came back to the states in 2016 was getting over the idea that only india is magical and allowing for the space that possibly the entire world is magical and that every, you know, all the kind of like amazing, um, I don't know how to, you know, like what we would say, wow, like all this kind of divine intervention type stuff that I experienced in India can also happen in the States. And of course it can. Yeah. It's funny because when I came back in 2016, I had a good friend of mine, he's like an uncle type from Switzerland. He's like probably in his 60s. Uh, he was returning to Switzerland and he and I had our flights an hour apart. So we went to the airport together. And when I was about to go through security, he said to me something that is constantly in, the, in my awareness every time now i've been back to states twice but throughout my time in uh, states last year and again now i've been here two months he said to me don't view america through indian conditioned eyes and that's such a huge uh rem like reminder um i also i read a lot of krishnamurti so this is like really his trip as well is like we tend to go through life thinking um, we know how it should be, or we have an expectation of how we think it should be. And then that sets us up for uh, a disappointment because we get somewhere and it's different. You know, you show up uh, to meet someone like, so it's even going back to the earlier example of how we connected again and we tried to meet up, but we couldn't meet up. So both of us could have been totally bummed. We could have been like, oh, dude, she blew me off. Oh, he blew me off and be completely disappointed. But we both kind of just went, yep, that's what it is. And next decision, boom, you do this, I do this, and it's fine. And I watch a lot. Um, you know, I've been staying, I stay with friends and family now that when I come to the States, I cruise around and I watch a lot of uh, people that I, even just strangers that I watch in the world, you go to a cafe and you see someone in line. Uh, there's a lot of disappointment that happens in the world, a lot of unnecessary upsetness. 
And really, I think what it comes from is uh, we think it should be like this and it's like this. And there's no real acceptance and surrender to what is in that moment. Um, and I will say, like, I, I didn't always think like this. So there was one line in here that I would like to read again because it really um, took me. I remember specifically when I didn't get this. And I remember someone trying to explain it to me in India. And I remember reading the Bhagavad Gita in philosophy class in undergrad and thinking, how weird is that? I mean, so this, I can't find the line right now, but so this idea of like going beyond likes and dislikes. And when I was reading the Gita the first time in college and you're, I'm like, you know, 19 or 20 years old, likes and dislikes is what drives us. Pleasure and pain, that's what drives us. So this idea of being in the middle of that and not it being reactive to either seemed completely foreign and that Bhagavad Gita is their stuff, that other culture's stuff. And then I remember living at the school, or this is probably around 2011 and 12, and one of the girls who ran the school, she was, she was kind of like the guru of the place, but even though she didn't want to put herself in that kind of pedestal-like position, she was reading the Gita and would try to explain some stuff to me. And of course, she didn't know so much English, so she's explaining from Sanskrit to Hindi, and even the Hindi for me was hard. But I remember thinking, beyond pain and pleasure, beyond likes and dislikes, what? Crazy. Nonsense. Because most of how we live, our culture in America has... Um, Media pushes us to want things, to have desires, uh, and kind of feeds our natural tendency to be annoyed when things don't go our way and to be totally elated when things are great. And this middle path is not our culture. And uh, I've seen in... Um, one of my friends, if she hears this interview, and she maybe she'll, I, I hope she'll be okay that I share this story. So there was a situation where I watched a friend freak out from a, there was like a particular scenario that we could have controlled the outcome. We could have prevented the outcome. And instead of taking ownership to how things went down, she continued, she ranted and raved and tried to police blame on someone else. And I didn't engage. I just, we were in a car. We ran out of gas. So I'm just sitting there allowing her to do her thing. And um, she got more upset because I was not engaging. I wasn't um, feeding her uh, freak out. I was just sitting there because one, I didn't think there was any reason to freak out. And um, also I recognized like, it's harder for someone to, um, if you're already in a freak out space and then someone's telling you don't freak out, that's even worse perhaps. So I just sat there. And several other incidents similar have come up of when I come back to States. And what I get from people, the feedback I get is a lot of like, why are you so complacent? Don't you have emotions? And I remember also in undergrad reading Buddhist stuff and thinking, it's kind of borderline stoicism. And 
Yeah, that because our culture in America is set up with highs and lows as the ultimate. You know, like you work really hard all week long, nine to five, if you're in that grind. And you work so hard that you need to party so hard on the weekends to compensate. So you're in that low and high, low and high. and Or you party so hard, you have such a great night, then the next day you're exhausted and you're in that low. And so it is life like a pendulum. And I think I've finally gotten myself to a place where maybe on the outside to those who are on that pendulum trip, I'm complacent or stoic. I mean, even my mom, I want, I know she's asked me, what, you don't get angry? Or recently someone brought up the concept of um, resentment. And I, it was a particular situation going on. She's like, I don't want any resentment between us. And I was like, but I don't do resentment. Because resentment, all that is, is when I'm upset that um, it didn't go my way. And I want to place blame on someone else. And so say you uh, were in the middle of something and it goes your way, not my way, and I resent you for it. That's like not accepting how it is. So those things I find, uh, yeah, those are parts of the cultural stuff that I recognize um, is different. And also like, so I wrote that in, you know, after five years. So the entire structural the cellular structure of our body change or rejuvenates or goes through a cycle in seven years so when i had returned to the states it was nearly seven years it was like three months three four months shy of seven years and yeah i came back i was a totally different kind of person um yeah, I feel now more rambling. But <laughs> you have some questions or feedback on that? No, I, I, I just, you're, you're, I wanted to let you go um, and, and just share because I think I know when I uh, read things that I've written in the past, I, I have my own experience of like, oh yeah, I remember when I felt that and why I felt that, and so I, for for me, it was just really interesting to observe you look at something in the past and then try to make sense of it or make sense of it, not try, but make sense of it in, in where you are right now. Um, I am interested. So you, 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 you talked about um, being an undergraduate and mm-hmm. being um, not repulsed by the ideas that you're comfortable with now, but um, maybe maybe a little bit in conflict or rejecting of those ideas? It was not so much a rejection. It just, you know, think about who we are in our teen, late teens and early 20s. I mean, you went to, we both went to Lake Forest College. We drank a lot. We did a lot of mushrooms. We did probably LSD. We smoked a lot. Like, we're enjoying we're partying we're having a good time and i remember the combination of psychedelics and a philosophy major was intense <laughs> like and there were a lot of things that we were reading in classes that just it's not that it didn't um yeah it didn't click but it also seemed so far away because of course it was cultures in the East, we were reading a lot of uh, you know, Eastern philosophies. And, and at that time, I never thought I'd end up in India, never. 
not even a dream of mine. I, I actually wanted to go to Mali because I really liked the music there. Like I didn't have any aspiration about going to India. And somehow it's the only country I've spent the most time in. I mean, I've seen a few other countries, but this is the one that stuck. And so how did that happen? I mean, I, I guess that that's where, that's what my real question is. So you hmm. like, I can totally relate to that, that arrogance of, of, you know, being in, in our twenties and saying like, yeah, that's, that's a bunch that's of their stuff. And it's yeah. like also we're, you know, I grew up uh, Jewish, not super religious or anything, but I also had, I remember having a, um, aversion to Christian things as well. And I'll get back to the, how did that India trip happen? But just on a side story that really made me check myself on a previous aversion to Christian things in the sense of like, I don't participate in that because I'm Jewish, this kind of concept. Um, last, when I arrived back in States in 2016, September, my first week, I was at a friend's wedding and it, and this actually ties into the story of how I ended up in India. So this guy whose wedding it was, he was who brought me to India in the first place. And so I'll, I'll get to that part in a second. So he married a, a Pakistani American girl. And the first night we arrive, her parents are also in town and we have dinner with her parents and we get to the house where they're staying. We get there around sunset time. And so we, uh, they're set up on the veranda balcony to do their evening prayers. Now, not it's all, I think, by chance. It's not any uh, particular choice of my own, but it just so happens that in India, my experience has been mostly around Hindu and Buddhist cultures. I don't have, I have more Muslim friends in New York than I'd have in India. I don't, it just happened that way. Um, partly due to the nature of what brought me there in the first place that I'll get back to. So I happened to have a scarf around my neck. It was fall. So, okay, I put it over my head for the session. I don't know anything about what they're doing. And I, it was like two lines. So the father and my friend uh, standing in the front and then myself and uh, his uh, soon-to-be wife's mom and sisters on the other side of me. So I don't know what – I've never done these prayers before. I actually don't think I've ever been inside a mosque. And so I'm just like looking at the corner of my eyes, seeing what they're doing. And I just follow along. And because I don't know Arabic, I don't know what he's saying. But in my mind, I just thought, okay, here's an opportunity to ex have some expression of gratitude. That's how I used the experience. And then when it was all done, um, he said, he the father turned around, we all sat down and he explained, he translated the prayers that he said. And that's all it was, was expressions of gratitude. But I had this moment in the middle of it as I'm doing these motions, like you were in like this and you put your hands on your knees and then you go down on your knees and you put your head on the ground and your hand, palms facing up and all the things. And I just had this moment of like, wow, I've really evolved a bit because if this was like a Christmas carol thing when I was in my teens, I would have said, no, I don't do that, I'm Jewish. And it was really cool to be in a place where I've recognized that it's all the same stuff, just different story, different language, different names or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, all the religions are, have 
nice. Um, if it's by the book, it's one thing, and then somehow the culture gets uh, confused sometimes. But by the book, it's all good. And I just found it funny that I remembered at that moment. I remembered, oh, I wouldn't have, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to do Christmas uh, like Secret Santa party. I wouldn't want to participate then, or you know. And the how like it was like a moment of like, all right, good job. You're a little more open than you used to be. But it was interesting. Then it was all about that. So anyway, back to how I got there. So this guy whose uh, wedding I was at in two thousand summer and after lake forest i moved to boston and i somehow got involved in um, photographing the kind of local band scene in boston area there's like new england conservatory and berkeley college of music and a lot of my friends had just graduated from there and i used to go to all these shows and i got gigs uh, photographing music festivals a lot and so there was one music festival in Pennsylvania that I wanted to go to. And at that same weekend, it was my sister's graduation um, from graduate school at RISD. And I had gone to her MFA art opening and then I, and we were planning to drive across the country. She was going to move to California. And I just had this feeling like I need to go to this music festival. I didn't know what it was, why I needed to go, but I, and because it wasn't like an extra special music festival. A lot of my friends would have been there, but it was just like there was a bigger reason why I had to be there. And uh, despite my mom and my sister's disappointment, I went to the festival, skipping the graduation. And the next morning, uh, I woke up in my tent and my friend Casey had just, and I knew like for several months he had been in India. And he had just arrived the night before to New York, went to a concert with one of the bands that was also going to end up at the festival. And then so by morning time, I come out of my tent and I see him there. And I've got, I was usually known to have a camera hang around. You know, I was always photographing stuff. So he's like, oh, you're still photographing festivals. I said, yeah. He said, we got to talk. There's this festival I want to uh, make a film about, and I think you should come. And it was this Kumbh Mela. And again, so this is summer of 2000. Internet was not so big, and there was not any, anything about the, about the Kumbh Mela on the internet. I mean, there was no Google, I think, at that point too, right? No Wikipedia, nothing. It was just surfacing at that point. And I had no idea what this thing was, and I had asked other friends who I knew in Boston who were Indian but grown up in the States and they didn't know anything. Then I asked their, I said, ask their, ask your parents. And they were modern Indians from Bombay or Delhi or wherever and they didn't know anything about it. And at that time I had a job um, at the Associated Press. I was like um, the photo editor's assistant. And I had started asking, um, I think it was my boss, the editor was on vacation and the staff photographers had just come back from the Australian Olympics. And so I started asking some of them about this festival and they knew about it. And they were like, and I was approaching it like I'm thinking to go, I got invited and they're like, oh my God, you have to go, of course. And so by the time our boss got back, I didn't have to ask to quit or take a leave from this job. The staff photographers, 
at the AP were like, we're sending Nicole to India. <laughs> and one guy took me shopping for a new camera. They, they, I quit the job and they gave me um, like a hundred rolls of film. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. So I got to that festival. So wait, be before you go on, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was, was any Buddhist practice or meditation practice or yoga practice was any of that part of your life at that point? No, I was partying. <laughs> okay. I mean, I had I had done some yoga in the 90s. Um, actually, I do remember at Lake Forest, I did do meditation. Um, there was some group that met in the chapel. I think it was Wednesdays and I used to do that. Was that with Ron Miller? Maybe. I don't remember the names. But um, And actually, I will say this. I had a lot of experience meditating in like before I was five in elementary, like elementary school, preschool time. Wow. And, uh, and this is what makes me believe in reincarnation because how the things I was doing as a young person without, and I've asked my mom and my sister, like, did you ever do this? Did you ever teach me this? And nobody has any idea and I was doing something where I used to like scan my body and tell different parts of my body to relax and I was having out-of-body experiences like in you know five and six years old and I remember even coming out of my body to go into the hallway to watch tv and then also I remember getting scared and I didn't, I think at some point, probably by first grade, I stopped because it was starting to scare me that what if I cannot come back in the body? And then in middle school and high school, wow. I think in high school, I had a friend who, uh, he had a ski accident and hurt his head and someone had taught him some meditation stuff so that he could uh, help his headaches. And then I was practicing stuff with him. And I remember in high school, it could have been high school or it could have been back in college on a summer break or something. And I remember sitting in my room with the lights off and my mom coming in and like, what are you on drugs? Why are you sitting in the dark? And so there were like a lot of things in our culture that doesn't encourage this. And so even in the first several times of coming to India, I had a lot of different, I would maybe I, on a trip that was six months, I would go for the Kumamela festival, which is like two and a half months. Then I'd end up like in Varanasi doing yoga or something. And then I'd end up in Bombay or um, Delhi or Goa partying. And so there was always this, uh, and I used to have different outfits for different parts of the country. And, um, I didn't, I will say, I honestly, I didn't get serious about anything until I came in 2010. Um, but I, I did interrupt you um, in your recount of the story. So you were, before I interrupted you, you were huh. talking about um, working as an assistant to the, um, as a, to the photo editor for Associated Press. And you were, you were going to this festival and you, or gathering a hundred rolls of film. So, um, so I was in 2004, um, which was a big turning point. 
um, so I had been 2001, I had been 2002, and then now 2004, I was coming back. And we had finished our documentary. We were going to screen it at a film festival in Goa. Um, and then that was in the winter. And then by the spring, it was um, the Kumamela again in Ujjain. And this documentary, was that specifically focused on the festival or yes. was there some other? Okay, so yes. it was the, a documentary about that festival. The film was called Take Me to the River. Um, not an SEO friendly title, but we didn't know about those things back then. And um, uh, yeah, it didn't get a whole lot of play because we were good artists, but we were not good business people. And we didn't know all the things about marketing and all that stuff. And it was in that transition time. Like we did really, we went to festivals with the film, but we didn't, um, um, it was before YouTube and all that. So we never really got the push. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I was part of the translation team. And one of the guys, uh, Indian guy, who also was part of the translation team, he and I read a lot of the, we read all the interviews of course. And a lot of the stuff didn't make it in the film that we thought were the gems. Mm. And um, I also started to think like, and especially like, as I, as I read all these interviews and I got and because I think with a little bit of a philosophy background and as my Hindi got better, I, he and I thought, there's a deeper story. And so I was thinking I wanted to keep shooting things and maybe use some of the footage that never made it into the first film and, and keep shooting. And um, a week before the Ujjain Kumamela in 2004, was on my 29th birthday, I was riding a bicycle in a small village in Allahabad where we were also doing a screening of our film. And I fell off the bicycle and ripped all the ligaments in my knee. And then the following week, we were already booked for a train to go to the festival. So I had a bag, a messenger bag full of camera equipment, film, um, audio recording equipment and stuff that I couldn't really use. I could barely carry the bag. I barely walk around. So a lot of things happened where um, I just... Like for example, the first day I, we got there, we go for the bath in the Shipper River, and you know, I'm here's this white woman with a knee brace and a bamboo stick because I was too proud to walk with the crutches, and I'm hanging out with this Indian guy, and everyone starts asking if he's my guide, and um, he says something at the time I thought was so ridiculous, but it made a big impact, and he says. Uh, she's my guru and she's teaching me photography and videography and sound recording. And I was like, Oh my God, what? But this was something that they actually could relate to because we're in a guru, shisha, guru, teacher, disciple uh, lineage here. So that, that was something they could connect with. Um, So a few, maybe like a few days or a week later, I was walk, limping down the road and some Baba in his tent, they do like this. They wave their hand upside down like this to call you over. And he's calling me over and I'm thinking to ignore him, but he finally was convincing enough. I walked over, we had a chai and he says, 
I've heard all about you. He's got good English. He heard, he's like, I have heard all about you. And he pulls out of his bag a four by six photo album and he starts showing me the pictures like it's a portfolio review. And he asks if he's good enough to be my student. And I was just like, oh my God, what? <laughs> and so because I could not really walk around, I couldn't be trying to chase photographs and video footage. So I was just starting to divvy out cameras. Here, you shoot this, you shoot this. And, and they were like, it was amazing. Nobody, I never had any fear like someone's going to steal it. it. They always came back when the battery died or the, the camera chip got full or something. They would come back and here now, what do I do? And I had tons of film. So people were, some people had their film cameras already, but they didn't know how to put the film in or they didn't have film. So I would give that away. But, but before you go on, Nicole, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm starting to connect the dots because I, a lot of, yeah. Yeah. So you're on, on that relatively local website there, there was, it looked like a trailer for a documentary that I, I can't remember the specific title, but it was something to the effect of, like through ascetic eyes or something to that effect. And it, yeah. it seemed as though the, the idea was, you know, giving cameras to local Indians and having that be the story. Is that, did I, am I now picking up? Yes. And so now we're the next, uh, yeah. So yeah. that 2004 was like, I didn't plan to give all those cameras away. It just started happening. And at that same festival, which is um, awesome, by the way, I, I love that serendipity. I mean, it, there seems to be a lot of serendipity in your story. Oh, it gets, yeah. It's even up until now, there's so many puzzle pieces that are just like, oh yes, I'm on the right path. Cause everything is just fitting perfect. Um, so yeah, 2004, there was a, an elder Mataji. So a female sannyasi who, um, and I tried to, cut to the chase of the story but basically she invited me to document the women's initiation rites which was something that had never been done and so and I don't think she told other elders in the organization that I was going to do this so there was a lot of back and forth so I would be escorted into this tent and told to shoot get every woman's face and then someone else would come, what the hell are you doing here? And pull me out. And then the other Mataji who brought me there would see me standing outside the tent and bring me back in. So there was this back and forth stuff. And that year, I didn't even know that I didn't get the entire initiation rights on footage. I got some stuff, but I didn't know even what was going on to know what I got compared to what actually happens. And it's a 24-hour ceremony. And another Mataji who's much, much later in my journey. Um, Mataji, what, what is Mataji? Mata so Mataji means mother, is a literal translation, but basically it's a kind of a generic term for a, a female sannyasi. So sannyasis are, um, it's like a Hindu nun in a particular sect. And without getting into all the kind of histories of uh, there's very different lineages, but basically these are uh, Das Nami Sannyasis. Das is 10 and Nam is name. So it's 10 different surnames of um, organized 
collection of um, mostly their Shaivites. So they worship Shiva um, in various forms. And um, there's Hatha Yoga involved and there's rituals and there's um, Tantra is also part of it. So there's a lot of different things going on. But so basically Babaji is like the generic term for a male sannyasi and Mataji for women. So another Mataji who much later in the journey, like years and years later, had declared to me that she's my guru. So that's a whole nother thing. But at that time in 2004 is when I met her and she politely, she speaks very good English. She politely instructed me never to show this footage that you shouldn't even be shooting this. I can't, like, um, this is private. I mean, yeah, it's initiation rights. It's not like you're going to put this stuff on BBC or something. So over the years now, this festival is um, four overlapping 12-year cycles in four different cities or towns. And according to astrology, how the planets are aligned a certain way, and often it's like a new moon or full moon eclipse, um, they believe it's auspicious to bathe in the river of wherever that town is. So um, the following festival was in 2007 in Allahabad. And again, they invited me to shoot initiation and I got even more footage. So basically between Ujjain, Allahabad and Haridwar, I have gotten the entire initiation rites but in sections of different um, different parts of the initiation rites in different parts where in different places where they have the festival, I didn't really try to overlap footage. I just caught the things that I didn't get the years before. And so, like I've got, and also, I will say, they don't let National Geographic, Channel Four, BBC, they don't let them in. Um, I can honestly say I'm the only one that has this kind of footage. Mm -hmm. Um, The men's initiation, because it's such a bigger population of people and it's harder to control the crowd, then possibly other film crews have gotten stuff. I I haven't seen enough documentaries to know like how much detail they get because there are several, uh, it's like a 24 hour ritual and there's different locations where things happen. And so there's a typical shot that most anyone can get access to. And then there's stuff that goes on that uh, they just don't give access to. Um, and so, yeah, I've got a, what some of my filmmaking friends who keep trying to convince me to do something with the footage is like, you have a gold mine. And I have instructions that says, don't show this. So also going back to the essay, um, A big reason why I put down the camera is, so I grew up in the West and our culture is outward looking. Um, We are, um, we're, we consume a lot of things. We consume media um, and we consume food, of course, but we consume a lot of impressions through the mind, through the senses, and especially media, social media, films, television, radio. Um, in my experience in visiting a lot of friends is a lot of people don't like silence. They like to have the radio on or the TV on or 
Um, you know, there's constantly something happening that is not this. Mm. Something to help us distract from the thoughts in our head. And that's very normal. And I have also, I've always, I mean, all my years living in the States growing up here, I think most of the time I had music playing in my place. All like that was like a standard. I was never a big TV person, but music was always going on. And I watched, uh, I remember the first school I lived at, we had cooking groups and I was, you know, still naive and thinking I'm this cool foreigner who's got all this music I collected and I'm going to expose these villagers to some, you know, Velikuti and, you know, every morning when I was in the cooking group, I'd like, oh, we're going to listen to this today and this is so cool and all this and and the head teacher at that school was like, finally came in one day and I got the laptop on the kitchen table and I'm like playing DJ while I'm cutting vegetables. And, and he was like, no, 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 turn this off. He said, this is just distraction. This is distracting you from the awareness of your breath. This is distracting you from the awareness of your thoughts. And I was like, at that point thinking, whatever, you know, but now I look back and I get it. He also did something to us or had us doing something that only the past year did I really get it, what he was doing. So we were two foreigners and about eight or 10 local Indians. Um, this is in the Garwal region. We were outside Deb Prayag in Uttarakhand. And um, a bunch of teachers running a school and we all lived together in an ashram. So one of the things he had us doing um, in the kitchen, which I thought naively at the time that was all about language skills, which it was on a surface level. So when we would cook, he had us always saying, what are you doing? I'm cutting vegetables. Like, so all this was constant checking in. And at that point in my awareness i thought it was just language and then just last year somehow it came back to me and i was remembering this experience i'm like oh my god this was mindfulness 101 and i didn't even get it at that time you know this constant check what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing do you know what's coming yeah. to my mind right now go for it karate kid mr miyagi exactly. said, wax on wax exactly. on he was, <laughs> his name is uh, Anand Devedi, and we called him Anandji. And yeah, he was definitely one of my first gurus, I would say. That's such a great story. He yeah. also did something that was so cool. Um, he would just walk up to you and get right up in your face and go, Wajiwa! And that was his code word for, are you aware of your breath? And it was a startling way that he would say it. So it was really cool. But like, it's interesting how um, we have different teachers in our lives that plant seeds. And sometimes we're not ready. Our soil is not ready to receive the teaching until we're ready. And so, so here he, this, I'm um, this, that kitchen scenario of, you know, what are you doing? I'm cutting vegetables. That was going on in 2010 and 11, wintertime. And it took me really until I would say 2017 that I was like, oh my God, I totally get what he was doing. 
And it's, or I would say even no, what year were two? So last summer, so 2018 monsoon time was when I was like, oh my God, that's what he was doing to us. And sure, like the awareness of my breath and the awareness of my thoughts was something that had been ingrained in me as a thing to cultivate in all the places that I had been living in India. But that as a particular exercise went completely over my head at the time. It was, was great there, to witness. Was there a, so you, you're, if I'm understanding the the story and the timeline, you're, you, you went to India on the quest to do the documentary, right? The original documentary which you produced, and then, and then you started getting invited to, um, you you were you were seen as a guru on on a camera level, on a photographer level. And, and you got footage of uh, initiation rites. And so now we're, we're moving into like the 2005, 2006, 2007 time period. And yeah, and then I would go, so 2007, so, okay, well, let's see. So 2004, I was giving cameras to Naga Baba. So these are these naked, ash-covered um, sadhus, yogis, um, and the men. And I was give, and what I also noticed in most documentaries about the Kumamela, they always featured the men. And even in our film, we had like a small, we shot an entire women's conference, but we only showed like maybe a few minutes of it. And so I could see that women were very underrepresented. I had these kind of, uh, naive ideas that I wanted to make this documentary about the women and find these really strong, independent women who have somehow broke out of a patriarchal culture. So what I've also experienced in India, aside from one of the places I've lived um, in Guptakashi, usually there's like two tracks. There's householders and sannyasis monks or nuns in whatever religion you're going to go in you're either kind of on a spiritual path or you're in a householder path and so householder is how they call it uh, and then you can also just consider it like how we live in the west we're career driven uh, we're going to have families we're going to raise kids we're going to consume products we're going to earn money so that we can spend money that's kind of that journey and then you have the sannyasi journey where you're going to renounce that it's basically a renunciation so you don't need um so for example the reason why the nagas are naked is this idea that they are clothed in the sky the ash that they're wearing on their bodies is from uh the ash from their duni this sacred fire that they're keeping burning all the time and this representation um that they are really living ghosts so part of the initiation rites is that they're giving themselves their uh, funeral rites. They're giving themselves their funeral rites so that when they actually lose the body, um, no one else is going to be responsible for the last rites. They have already done it. Um, so that's, you're, uh, they're living outside of this um, materialistic world and having a level of, uh, I, and again, this is by the book. So when you get any, you obviously we can say in any organized religion, you have the buy the book thing, and then you have what actually goes on. Because again, we're human. We have, it's not easy to have 
like we can say, I don't want anything. And then in the mind, you might be like, oh, I want that, right? So the concept of not having desires and then actually not having desires are two different things. So we have the surface level of, I know I took initiation, I'm wearing a uniform, but let's get it uh, clear that just because one has taken initiation and is now has a new name and a uniform, does not mean that they've reached the goal. It means that they're on the path and they're trying. It's, we, sadhana is a practice, meditation, yoga, whatever it is. It's a practice. It's a practice because we have to practice it. It's not that we've achieved. And of course, there are some people who have achieved the goal and they can walk backwards and bring someone along. Hey, it's this way, it's this way, it's this way. But uh, we can't say um, in the same way that uh, you go to any modern yoga class in America, just because they're the ones sitting in front of the class telling us which asanas to do does not mean that they're enlightened or they've even got their shit together. Right. You know, most of us who come into the wellness uh, community as a facilitator or even someone uh, before wellness was a hip thing, Uh, someone who went into becoming a therapist or into psychology, it's because we have our own issues we're trying to figure out. Yeah. And so we go into these things so that we can uh, find some solutions to figure out. And then once we figured out um, some things that have worked for ourselves, then we can share it with others who maybe have struggled with the same thing. So for example, like a little bit I know about your journey, like you're using meditation to uh, manage your anxiety. Like, yeah, I will definitely say it's, I think it's really, and without insulting anyone, I think it's very easy to say, to acknowledge that any facilitator in any form of what we now in the West call wellness, which would, you know, meditation, yoga, what is any kind of, um, you know, a static dance, like all these things that are helping us to process and deal with our shit. Most of the facilitators struggle. And that's why we facilitate these things. One to remind, like it's a way of community building, a way of developing a sangha, a group of people that can come together to help each other, support each other in this journey that we're trying to be on, right? Yeah, I, and I, I mean, that's, um, that is something that I learned long ago, that if I, if I need, if I want to learn a subject, I need to teach it to others. Exactly. It helps. It's, and that's also how I approach teaching, uh, because, you know, my career in New York, I was, a, I ran a multimedia education center. So, um, and then a lot of the early years, um in India early in the sense of my actually starting to live there. So from 2010 onward, those early years I was working in alternative education. So yeah, a big thing is peer education. So we didn't do exams or um, report cards or anything, but how we could see that a student is um, progressing is their ability to teach another peer. And so, yeah, that's, and a lot of my jobs, like, you know, I had to teach video. Um, probably, I think it was like 2005, I got a gig as a video instructor for a teen program. It's not like I was a professional video editor. 
in Final Cut Pro, like I knew basic stuff, but yeah, I had to teach myself some things in order to teach the kids some things. Right. And that's how it works, right? I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit, mm -hmm. disconnecting from your, your timeline. I recall, I think in the last year, you posting on Facebook some, some commentary about, um, I think it's the RYT certification for yoga teachers. Hmm. Am I getting the acronym right? There's, there's a there's yeah, registered a, yoga teacher. Okay. And so you, if I understood you correctly, you were, you didn't like the certification process. It, it, it seemed if, and again, I'm, I want you to, to correct what I'm saying, but I perceived you saying that there was a commercialization and a simplification of what yoga is. And you didn't, you, you were hesitant to support that certification. And I'm, I'm bringing this up because in the piece that I had you read, you, it sounded like you, you had gone through a 500 hour Hatha yoga certification. Right. Well, so, so it's, yeah. So what, tell me, tell me about that. Cause it seems like you, you've gone through a transition and well, yeah, go ahead. I've, I've actually probably racked up over a thousand hours of certifications. Um, yoga Alliance uh, accredited. And I've been in the position where I'm writing curriculum for the yoga programs at the Ashramari State, and I've been responsible for putting our curriculum on the Yoga Alliance website. I've been in meetings where we were deciding if we were going to join Yoga Alliance or not. And here's the thing. So, yeah, yoga comes from the East. America has taken, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about it, especially now that I've been back in the States a couple times over the years. So there's this thing that I, I don't know if I coined it or it existed before as a concept, but this spiritual industrial complex. Mm. So capitalism has turned the wellness into a wellness as an industry and so, for example, these are things that I find really fascinating. So um, here I am, I live in an ashram where we do have yoga programs. People, it's basically, we, it's an ashram and it's been turned into a yoga retreat, yoga and Ayurveda retreat center. And many times some foreigner, foreigner could be European, American, whatever, they'll come and they want to know where do I buy yoga clothes? And we laugh because there's no such thing as yoga clothes. It's just the clothes that you're wearing and you just do yoga. <laughs> and then, but in America or in, in, I guess in all the West, in the capitalist uh, culture, it's become an industry that you can make products on. So yoga pants and stuff. Actually, I have, I've toyed with this once in a while. I, if I rarely, but once in a while I, I'll post some asana picture on instagram but i always hashtag it no yoga pants and that's not that i'm doing yoga naked 
<laughs> so no, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm not doing yoga in a bikini or anything. But um, there, we have a different kind of outfit uh, traditionally. Um, and it's just the outfit that you're wearing that day and you happen to be doing, you know, asana actually means your seat. So all the things that we're doing in the West, uh, I mean, in generally, like, so there's a lot of different stretchy things that we're going to do to be able to open up our channels so that we can flow the energy properly. But all of this is getting us to a position where we're able to sit still. Um, so most of, uh, and getting back to the yoga line stuff, yeah, like the audacity that America because this is an American company, company organization. I'm not sure there's actual economic structure, how it works. But so basically, it's a website that I can pay money to join and put my profile up and get in their directory. And if I'm a, on a teacher level where I am facilitating teacher trainings, then I would put up my curriculum. And so as an ashram, we pay a certain amount of money a year as teachers to be qualified to facilitate teacher trainings. And then we also pay a certain amount of money a year for each curriculum. So if I'm going to offer a 500 hour course, I pay some money to put that curriculum on their website. If I'm going to offer a 300 hour course or a 200 or a 100 hour, all those courses, I have to pay a fee every year just to post that curriculum and be granted the authority to put that Yoga Alliance stamp. So the meetings that I was uh, sitting in on, uh, we would go to Rishikesh, which they call the yoga capital of the world. And actually what I would say, it's, it's the yoga capitalist capital of the world. It's like a shopping mall of yoga teacher trainings now. And if you were to ever YouTube search uh, Rishikesh when the Beatles were there, it was the jungle. So it is the epitome, it's the best example of gentrification in India. Mm. I will just be real about that. Um, and it's, there's a lot of great things about it, but it's basically a construction site of new yoga programs. Um, so we were going to these meetings where other guys were convincing us that we have to register our ashram as Yoga Alliance because basically here's how it is, is you've got, that most of the teachers in India who are doing commercial teaching programs. So we're gonna. So first of all, you have a you, you have a guru shisha parampara. So this guru disciple student tradition, where traditionally you would, as a student, you would do a seva volunteer service for the guru for twelve years, and then maybe once in a while you could glean some education out of it. And then after that 12 years of service, you would go through one round of initiation and really officially become a student. And then they would, you would get a little bit more kind of instruction. Maybe, maybe your teacher was really into Hatha Yoga and all this, and you would get some guidance and some practices to do. Um, and then 12 years, another round of some initiation. And so we're looking at maybe 24 years of practice and study before, actually service and practice and study before you could even call yourself a teacher. 
And, and also in that tradition, you are not a guru until a student asks you to teach them something. So it's not like I do these rounds of initiation and I say, now I'm a guru, come be my student. It doesn't work like that. So then academia came in and you've got um, now university programs in India will offer like masters or PhD in yoga science several year program and which will involve uh you know i've seen friends go through these programs so not only are you practicing uh cleansing techniques um asana pranayama all these different practices and you're having to do powerpoint presentations you're having to write papers you're having to study philosophy study sanskrit all the all that it's academia so what happens in Rishikesh is there's a lot of schools in the Haridwar area that are um, university programs in the Haridwar area, which is just like 45 minutes downstream um, because we live along the Ganga River. And then they'll go to Rishikesh with their masters or their bachelor's, master's, PhD, whatever. Now they've studied seven years in an academic program. And you can go and try to become a teacher, but what is going on now is um, you're really not going to get a lot of students unless you're advertising a yoga teacher training. And so now it's been distilled to a one-month course or at the very most a three-month course, but really a lot of foreigners cannot take, unless you quit your job, you're not going to take three months off of work and do a teacher training. So the the, the participants we get who are able to do that, they've, they're transitioning from careers or something. They've quit their career to do something else, and they can take that three months. But it's I also find it's difficult for us. We don't often get people who will continue for the entire three months. We'll get one month at a time participants. So you get... Um, so yeah, so I'm going to these meetings and they're, these other guys are trying to convince us to join Yoga Alliance so that we can also earn better money by providing yoga teacher trainings, which is what the foreigners want. And the foreigners want this Yoga Alliance certificate, which somehow became an authority recognized all over. And I'll remind, yeah, an American company. Right. Like, Right. So they know it's bullshit. And so what's going on is we, and I hate, maybe I'm going to blow up the spot here, but basically, yeah, what happens is um, you'll have one center that is already a Yoga Alliance certified center. And then another center that wants to be Yoga, certif yoga Alliance certified will become a proxy center of that other center. And all it is is an exchange of money a photoshopped uh, certificate, someone's signature. You put money also on the Yoga Alliance website, and it's this. It's like anyone with Photoshop skills and some money can join Yoga Alliance. It's because you've got some, you've got a PhD. What do you need to do to take a 500-hour course? It's a waste of your time. You studied years already. So it's just this formality. And that's how it's getting going as far as the facilitators of these Yoga Alliance courses. And then, so yeah, I find the whole thing ridiculous. And I have yet to register myself with Yoga Alliance. 
And I can get away with that because I live, uh, I teach mostly in India. Um, and at the same time, I've been, um, I've had some opportunities to teach in Europe and in America, and sometimes they want Yoga Alliance. So I am seeing how that's in, my stubbornness is an inhibitor for me to be playing in the, um, yeah, like playing the game in that spiritual industrial complex. So like, so it's, I'm in the place of, now that I've been back in the States a couple of times, I, I'm curious, like, is this, will I ever fold and get into it or, or not? Um, Do you how stubborn will I be, you know? What I hear is a, a justified principled stance from you that you, you, you identify that this alliance has, um, it, it's shallow. Um, and I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's, that's essentially how I would, I would characterize it. But on the other side of it, um, on, on the practical side of it, there is a, there is yoga is permeating Western culture. And yes, there are capitalistic elements to it and drivers to it, but I look at myself and, and someone who's interested in exploring yoga more. And I'm, I'm certainly sensitive to the capitalistic nature of it, but it's like, what, what are my options as someone who lives in the West? If I want to get into this stuff, it's, it, it's a, it, at a bare minimum, it's giving me exposure to a good thing, right? Yoga, and and although it's a shallow version of yoga, and I, and I see that and I understand that, nevertheless, it's kind of it's planting that seed, so that you know I'm I'm all the more curious to understand what's going on over in India in the real ashram. So I I guess I'm what I'm what I'm got driving at. What my question is is like what's what do you see as a more practical means of uh, yoga? So maybe the, the first question is, should yoga be practiced in the West? And if, it, if the answer is yes, then how do you envision it best being done? Well, for example, I recently took a class in San Francisco, like it's just a few weeks ago. And it was actually like uh, we were planning to go to the class that the studio owner was teaching and something happened. She couldn't make it. So it was a substitute. And my friend who brought me there after the class was apologetic. Oh, this is not what I expected it was going to be. I'm really sorry. But, you know, what I found in the few classes that I've uh, checked out over the past couple of years returning to the States is I think that people like Yogi Bhajan or Shivananda or different uh, gurus who brought, helped contribute to bring uh, yoga to the West, uh, Pratabi Joyce, especially someone, uh, uh, his, uh, that Astanga series is such a dynamic movement, physical driven practice. It's like some of these practices got adapted to the culture so I see 
yoga as an opportunity to change a culture, evolve a, the humanity. However, if the practice itself gets adapted to the already state of mind that the population is in, then we won't change the population. We're just going to... So, for example, like a typical, the typical yoga class that I took um, a couple weeks ago, I, I mean, a zillion warrior positions. So many times we did warrior. And actually, like in the, my personal practice, I rarely do warrior. And I found it really fascinating that it makes sense because we live in the West, we live in a culture that is very warrior-like. Um, very individual and very um, competitive. And so on a metaphorical stance, like that is a awesome and that makes sense to keep doing and make us strong and, um, yeah, to live like warriors. However, I think if the practice could be uh, less about uh, fitting into what the population is already like and something else. So for another example, like last year, or I guess it was 2017, also in the Oakland, San Francisco area, a friend I was staying with, she invited me to submit a potential proposal for a workshop at the yoga center where she was teaching. And I wrote all this stuff about stillness. And she proceeded to try to re-edit uh, my proposal with Thing, words like movement and flow and vinyasa and all this. And I was like, but that's not how I practice. Um, and I definitely maintain the position that you can only teach what you're actually practicing. I cannot teach what I've been taught if I'm not practicing it. Because again, as a teacher, you want to be a few steps ahead of your students. So you have to have had practiced it for so long that you know what the, your results have been you know how it has affected you. Um, so when my practice is not all this flowy movement stuff, I can't teach like that. And yes, I've been trained some way so I can, because I've also always curious and I take a lot of different, I have taken a lot of different teacher trainings just really now on the idea of what are people teaching. I get really curious about that. Um, but the fact that uh, that experience was really interesting to me to see that, yeah, I was being asked to compromise my practice and my teaching style or what I wanted to expose people to in order to fit what they were already used to. And I don't find that to be very useful. Mm. Like if you're already a runner and I'm going to teach you how to run, already just doing what you like or what you're used to, that's not going to stretch and grow you. Um, we stretch and grow by learning things that are challenging to us or something that we're not comfortable with or that we're not used to. That's how we evolve. So, and I will be the first to say I have not, I'm not a guru. I've not reached any sort of, um, you know, I'm on the path. I'm not at the goal. I have still always things uh, internally that I'm working on. Um, and at the same time, I have figured out a lot of stuff. So I do feel like I have some things to share. Like I, I had another scenario. I got invited to teach in London, actually, this past November. It didn't happen. And in the negotiating of the uh, what I was going to do, she really wanted me to teach 
of five-day meditation teacher training. This was the post that prompted, that, that, that brought my awareness. So, yeah, it's really actually fascinating how that went down because we, we debated quite a long time back and forth um, why she thought I needed to call it a teacher training, why I didn't feel comfortable calling it a teacher training. Um, I don't believe you can learn meditation in its truest form in five days, right. much less be qualified to teach it in five days. And I felt this is the predicament that that uh, industry has created where people like to, um, first of all, I think the problem with capitalist material culture is we, if it's expensive, we give it value, more value. Uh, so if I'm in, if I have an option to go on a retreat that's by donation or an option to go on a retreat that's like four hundred dollars uh, a day or four or or a couple days of retreat, um, the the culture has brainwashed us to believe that the more expensive one is the one I'm going to get the most out of. And yes, there's some psycholo- psychology that works where if I'm paying for it, I'm going to take it more seriously. Um, if I'm just, uh, if it's by donation, then I might, uh, not give it my all to participate. So that's just how we're, um, how we've been programmed to operate in the, in the capitalist world. Time is money, service is money, um, energy exchange is money. Money has become our value system. So I had a really hard time, um, and I had to, yeah, like ultimately the thing got canceled um, because I really just felt it was um, against my integrity to fool these participants into thinking they're going to be qualified meditation teachers in five days. And if, and I actually was not the one to say let's cancel. She canceled on me and really hasn't explained all the ins and outs about what happened, why she needed to cancel. There was like a few weeks of no communication. Um, and actually I find it weird. It seems she has blocked. And we were people who were talking on WhatsApp almost daily in the preparation for this retreat, as well as just as friends. It seemed like she was trying to cultivate a friendship with me. And honestly, like, she blocked me from social media and I find that really peculiar. And never now that it's already November has come and gone and this would have been the time I had, I would have been in London and back already. I have thought several times to reach out to her, like, did you block me? Like what's going on? Like there, we have photos where we were in together that had been tagged both of us and her tag is missing. I can't access her on any of the social media that we were connected previously. So I find that really strange, but that's a whole nother gossip story, I guess. But yeah, this is, it's fascinating to me that that's, um, yeah, like there's, and I, and I'm not trying to say like, of course, every situation that you're doing, you want to make a livelihood out of it. You want your life to be sustainable. And it, you could say the same thing about musicians and artists. They want to be able to um, earn what they're valued for the work that they want to do. So in the same way in the wellness community, of course, like 
if you're living in the West where you have rent and you have bills and you're participating in this economy, you need to earn your sustainable worth. Um, I have the luxury to live in a place where um, I don't have that situation. Um, I can volunteer. I can teach uh, yoga for free in India because I don't have those kind of expenses. I don't have any credit card debt. I don't have any loans. I don't have any, I don't have a mortgage. I don't have car payments. I don't have rent. Like, so I do recognize that I'm in a different position to have this stance and my stance cannot be uh, pushed onto anyone else who is participating in American economy where they need to be charging this month this much money for a private session and this much for a retreat and all those accreditations that come with insurance and all these things those are essential in this game I'm just not playing that game so it's no disrespect to the people who are in that game because that they have to do all these things you have in this way your same way if you're going to be a massage therapist you need a license you need insurance it's this yoga alliance is serving that purpose in America or in Europe where those things are essential. So it's not to say that that organization be, should be dismantled. It's just to put in perspective the trajectory of where we've come from a 12-year guru-shisha relationship to a, distilled it into 200-hour course. Right. So one of the things I had done, I took, uh, I was in Rishikesh, uh, last year in March, and I got invited to um, be part of like a week immersion, Indian immersion of a particular yoga teacher training from Europe. And I was meant to, um, among some other things, but one of the responsibilities was giving feedback on their practicum. So they're uh, demonstrating teaching. So different participants were to teach a class. And then after there was a panel of us who could give some feedback. And so one of the things I said is that I gave that uh, historical timeline of where we've gone from a Guru Shisha Parampara of 12 years of service and so on, PhD programs, to now you got a 200-hour certificate. Uh, so I said, let's consider that 200-hour certificate as your learner's permit. It's like when you drive a car, first you get a license that tells you you're allowed to drive with a co-pilot. And in the same way, now you've got your 200-hour, even your 500-hour certificate. This is your license to practice. Now go practice for some years and figure out, uh, instead of reading in a book that this asana is going to do X, Y, Z, to my physical body and XYZ to my uh, mental body and XYZ to my energetic body, instead of reading it out of the book and regurgitating it to my students, I want to practice it and see what actually happens to me. Practice it long enough so I can observe and also cultivate the sensitivity so I have that awareness of, oh, that's what it's doing to my breath, that's what it's doing to my muscles, that's what it's doing to my mind. That's what it's doing to me vibrationally. And yeah, like this, that's why we call it a practice. Yeah. And I also can, re, you know, I have, I will admit, like I've been kind of snobby sometimes about some of the things I've written. And I had an experience this summer in the, what we call monsoon there, where I had to check myself. 
um, because so I, I brought a harmonium up to this cottage where I live in the mountains. And I'm not a musician. I never had any music training. I play instruments by ear. I've kind of taught myself the harmonium. And I have enough of an ear that I can listen to something and figure it out. And a lot of the local kids were coming to my house for harmonium lessons. And I had this moment of like, I didn't go to music school. I don't have an MFA in music. I never even took a piano class. Who am I to teach harmonium to these kids? And so it definitely made me uh, retract some of, not necessarily retract, because I do stand on that idea, but I recognize that there's always, uh, for whatever level or place we are in the path, in whatever it is that we want to learn, and it goes back to the peer education concept, um, if I know just a tiny bit more than someone else, I can at least share that with them. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to even put get myself to that level of snobbery that you have to have 12 years of practice in order to teach something. Um, so I do recognize that there's always a, uh, some teacher that's qualified to teach a student that doesn't know as much as they know. So here I am, I'm not a music, I'm not a musician, I'm not professional, I've never had any training, but I knew enough that I could teach a five-year-old how to play some basic stuff on the harmonium. I could teach a teenager how to play their favorite Bollywood pop song on the harmonium. Um, and a professional musician might look at me and say, oh my God, what the hell is she doing, <laughs> right? So it was a really humbling experience to go through that last monsoon and like recognize that some of the things I might have written um, has an, a different, you know, you can take the opposite stance as well. Well, I, so here's, it's interesting. I, I see a parallel in this discussion to some of the things that I'm uh, confronting in, in some of the work that I'm doing. So what, what I hear you say in the westernization, the capitalization of yoga is that capitalism requires a, it's like a standardization that capitalism requires. So I'm going to pay money for a certain service and I want to have a guarantee that that service or product is at a certain level. And so there's this mechanism to standardize and certify that something deserves my consumption of it. And that's, that's what I'm hearing you talk about with yoga is that you're you see the practice of yoga, the teaching of yoga more as a continuum as opposed to something that is standardized by these checkpoints that are arbitrarily being imposed upon by capitalism. Well, also, let me just say, say from a teaching background, in different uh, mediums, so I, you know, I've I've been involved in holistic education on both a teacher level and a curriculum development level. Um, I've I really like a lot of Krishnamurti stuff, which is kind of, he's kind of like the Montessori of India, I will say. Um, so, and I'm very against standardized education on a general standpoint both in, um, you know, from the primary high school level and all that, and in, and then we can take it from yoga as well. So 
a good example of that is so you have like this uh, yoga Krishna Macharya who was the teacher of both Iyengar and of Prachabi Joyce. And both these uh, yogis developed completely different practices. If you're so, uh, for those who are familiar with Iyengar, his is very alignment based, he uses lots of props. Um, you know, that's it's chairs and straps and blocks and all kinds of stuff, ropes on the wall, all kinds of things. And then you have Prachabi Joyce, who um, brought uh, um, Astanga yoga, not Astanga yoga in the eight limbs of uh, Patanjali as a philosophy, but Astanga yoga as a, as a physical asana series. And for those who are Stangis, they know there's like uh, different levels with different, different uh, series of things. It's a very strong physical practice. So they both had the same teacher. And the point that I'm bringing is yoga is not something to be standardized. So uh, Krishna, Krishna Macharya, who was a Pradabhi Joyce and uh, Iyengar's teacher, he could see in these two students that they needed to practice in totally individual ways their body type or their uh, mental state or whatever. Of course, I have no idea his choices, why he chose this, but in some way he could, and, and that's really the nature of a real solid guru is they can see in all their students what they need in their practice. And it's not standardized. So um, traditionally we don't, in, the, in India, you're not going to find um, yoga classes with 30 participants all doing the same thing mm. um, but when you're doing it on, and also uh, you'll have again you've got the service uh, part of it so serving the guru you've got the duction a part of it giving a donation um, and it's according to what you can so if i'm very wealthy and i only give a hundred dollars um, that's not really good enough. But if I'm very poor and I give a hundred dollars, that's enough. That's great. You know what I mean? So there's all this uh, stuff. There's not. It's not a standard to twenty dollars a class situation. Um, so, and in the same way, the point where I'm trying to drive is that it's not meant to be a standardized practice. And however, in the West, when we're basically, I see yoga in the West as seed planting. So it's different. You know, you go to a dropping class, you check something out, and they're going to have really cool music to lure you in because also the mind wants a distraction. You don't want to. We're living in a culture here in the West. We don't want to listen to our thoughts so much. So you fill it it with other kind of noise. It maybe. Uh, may, I've even been to yoga classes where they're playing hip-hop music so loud that I can't hear the instructor unless she walks past me. But there's all these different kinds of ways, and it's hooks to get someone in who might not ordinarily uh, feel um, they're ready. Or, you know, it's like a way to get them in. So it's, it's seed dropping. And when one's soil is ready enough for that seed to sprout, then they might go on and search out something a little bit deeper. So I think all of the things, yeah, like you've seen a very typical image is that iceberg. You see the tip of the iceberg over the water and the rest is underneath. But that iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is also important. You know, you need to give the sample stuff um, in order to 
maybe you got 10, 20 people in your generic class and two people, even one person might be more curious for something deeper. Mm. And then that's a, a good thing. And what I'm also hearing is that you're, you're more interested in that 90% of the iceberg underneath if to take your analogy that you're you're more interested in cultivating that exploration as opposed to cultivating the upper 10 percent is that is that a fair yes and i have the luxury of not having a day job and i have right. a place in the mountains where in the himalayas where i can spend a lot of time in silence, a lot of time studying uh, scriptures and a lot of time practicing. And when I come back to the West, I recognize that that's not realistic. So that's again, that difference between a sannyasi path and a householder path. If I'm trying to, if I had to maintain, uh, you know, an income that I had to pay rent and if I was participating in the credit card scenarios and all that, then yeah, it's a different story. Um, also, the time noticing um, the daily routine is very different in the West. Um, in India, it's pretty normal for me to wake up at three, four in the morning and go to bed before eight. Um, but here, it's not like that. So you and also like a typical time to do a practice would be before nine a.m. But uh, it's not so realistic in the West. Um, and also like, yeah, like for me, if I had my freedom to do it my way, I would be only doing my, uh, yoga practice stuff in the morning before I ate. So it's basically between your morning shit, you're going to the toilet and breakfast. You want your stomach to be empty. And then we have in, uh, especially in, I guess all over the West, when we have nine to five culture, no one really is willing to get up or able to get up and do a practice before they go to the office. So the best time for them to do it is after work. So if you're gonna have a practice that is after work, you have to adjust the entire setup of the practice to fit the time of the day, uh, the mental state of all the things they've, impressions they've consumed throughout the day, um, the fact that they've eaten already twice. Um, so there's a lot of changes and adjustments that have to be made in order to make it work for this culture. Yeah, I, and I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I'm, I, I feel myself migrating away from the culture. I, I don't know how much you've actually dipped into some of the stuff that I've written. And um, I'm just beginning um, to. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I didn't have that expectation, but I'm, I've, I've really, in the past two years, even in the past year. I clearly have come to see that number one, the majority of my life has been led meeting other people's expectations, trying to meet other people's expectations and trying to fit into, for lack of a better phrase, the Western culture of uh, production and seeking admiration and, and seeking glory. It, for yeah, again, that's it's a little bit dramatic, but it's a little bit not. No, but that's exactly how we've been conditioned to behave. So you're that that whole that's exactly how we've been set up. Right. 
to be productive, to make a name for ourselves, to uh, fit in, uh, to be accepted. And so when we start to veer off that, there's always, I mean, how I've experienced myself, there's two kinds of transitions. There's that one like, oh, my God, you get to a point of who am I? And then the um, not the facing, not fitting in, in, in the older circles that we once uh, were making effort to fit. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of challenges. And as the same, I commend you for going for it because we're not going to change our... Um, world or society unless we some of us have the guts to jump off the boat yeah and i, I think that that's that that's the suitable analogy that that i've reached in the last few months the last year or so is i i'm, I'm ready to go all in and and jump off of the boat take that leap of faith for another way and there is interest that i have in going over to india and exploring that way of life. Um, my, my meditation practice is getting, it's getting deeper. And I'm, I certainly relate to a lot of what you wrote in that one post. And, and even in this conversation, the, I, I I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't know if you're aware of it, but have, have you heard of Patreon? Yes. And I have set up a thing, but I've not done any, I like, I made, I've only made the account. And I haven't done anything about um, you making music. Right. I, I guess I, I'm, I, I actually see a lot of hope in that Yeah. because I, I'm noticing, I'm noticing several professionals, air quotes, professionals that are, are they, they're moving into that means of sustaining themselves. So they're not, they're not doing that standard charging of certain amounts of money for their services or their products. They're asking for donations through Patreon to whatever people are able to, to donate. And it's, it's starting to gain traction with some more successful people. And it's intriguing me to go down that route too. I, I don't, I don't know how to do it. I I've always had trouble asking people for their support, whether it's emotional support or uh, yeah. financial support. But um, anyway, I, I think it's something to explore and to at least. I'm not sure if it's a Western development. Maybe it's just more of a hum, humanity development. I, I I just like that that mode of subsistence. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think a lot of um, how our especially American culture has been set up to create us into these individuals and with, and I struggled with this a lot, especially like about three years into my stay in India, this last uh, batch of years, um, because I was living in a household that was collective. We had one purse for 23 people. We had uh, cabinets of clothes that were not yours and mine. It was just clothes. Wow. Um, you know, there were many times I would walk out of the house and try to find my sandals and I couldn't find them. Someone else liked them and they wanted to wear them. And there was nothing I could, if I were to say, hey, where's my sandals? They thought I was a lunatic. What do you mean my sandals? What my? And so um, I had to really face how American culture made me such an individual um, where 
personal space, personal possessions, uh, competition, like all this kind of stuff I had to battle with and shed because it just didn't work in that culture or in, in our bubble of culture, I will say, because I can't say that's all of India. This was just like a particular household that I lived in that was intentionally set up in that way. Um, and yeah, we're not going to thrive as a humanity until we learn that collaboration is the thing that we need. So mutual support, and also I struggle with it too, like this idea of like asking for support and be it financially, physically, um, emotionally, like because our American culture has set us up to be self-sufficient and independent um, and just that individualness. So there's like, I toy with the idea of someday writing a book and I already have one chapter title, The Individual in the Collective, because that was a big struggle of mine um, those years living in that household was, yeah, I was this crazy American that had all these individual ideas. And it was only, it was all the conclusions that made sense according to how the condition, the cultural conditioning in which I was brought up. Um, and this idea that we are, um, you know, we can get into the environmental stuff too. Like this is, these are all things that need to change. The idea that we are individuals, we are meant to compete with each other. We are meant to rape and pillage the environment for resources that we foolishly, naively think are uh, forever uh, available. And so all this kind of stuff has to change, but we're not going to change it in policies and we're not going to change it in even physical actions. We're going to change it in a mental um, awareness or in, in like a, a different philosophical way of seeing the world or seeing ourselves and our relationship to the environment and our relationship to the people around us. And I've gone through the process. It's painful to unwire all the programming in our brains and then have to put them back in a different way. It was a kind of a, a freak out time of my journey, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's hard. And I relate to the, I know like after college, I remember senior year at Lake Forest College, watching my peers um, sending in their resumes to join corporations and I didn't do that. And everyone, a lot of my friends, why aren't you, what are you going to do? And I just wasn't interested. I didn't at that point have any other exposure to know any alternative. Um, and for many years in New York, I tried my best to play the game. And um, even taking, uh, kind of diverging from having studied philosophy to now doing something more practical with media, and recognizing much later on, like when I first got to India, there was a moment where I was like, oh my God, this is what's up. This is where it's at. And I didn't understand it enough because of the language barrier to know really what it was all about. But there was something really tangible in the sense, in the feeling of this is that alternative. And at the same time, I'm watching um, because we have now uh, um the globalization of media, we have access to all the cultures in the world. And so I'm watching this American culture, this Western capitalist materialist culture get um, 
you know, everybody, well, you know, they grab it. And I'm watching also in the same way, more and more Americans recognizing that no matter how much I have, no matter how much money I have, no matter how many things I have, I'm still not happy. Um, no matter how successful I am in my career, no matter how big an apartment or how much money I have in my bank, I'm still not content. And then I've been in Indian small villages where they don't have anything in comparison to what we think is successful or, or what we think is a poverty level. And they are so content. And I seeing this, like there's this back and forth of uh, the Eastern culture starting to catch on to what capitalism and materialism is providing and looking outward for happiness. And then the uh, people in the West are starting to catch on that maybe looking inward is going to find me some contentment and happiness. And they're starting to like uh, cross over in a way, almost crash into each other in a way. Um, and I joke sometimes in India with my friends, like maybe eventually I have to move back West because <laughs> the West, they're um, following you guys and you guys are following the stuff that I left behind. And, um, you know, like I can only, I live in a rural, I choose to live in a rural community that is still, um, not yet, I don't, tainted in that way. And I'm watching it come. I'm watching it arrive. You know, their kids are getting more into uh, social media and exposure and they they, reckon, they start to think maybe I need this, this and the other thing and they don't. But um, when I was living in the Berkshires in summer 2017 and I was meeting people who had quit corporate jobs in New York to work simple organic farming gigs in the Berkshires and rural community. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Then I go back to India to tell people this and they're like, no way, no way. Because the community where I live, uh, the young people like after high school and so forth, they move down to the cities because they think success means to work in a corporation or in a company. And organic farming is that thing that their parents do and it's not cool. <laughs> so just like, and then when I say, no, really, people are quitting these corporate companies and going to back to farming. And I try to remind them, like, actually, you are where Western culture is starting to round the circle again and go back to it. So if you just stay where you are, you're good. And you cannot change the course of culture. Like, of course, um, the grass is always greener. Someone's going to want to check out some other scenario. I mean, I know that when I grew up, I wanted to go as far away as I could from my hometown. I've even now left my country. So I am no position. I'm in no position to tell some villager not to go leave their village and explore something else. Of course, go do it. You've got to expand your world. Um, and I cannot tell any, I can't uh, inhibit anyone from experiencing um, the Western culture that's coming, right? You got to experience it and then you can say you don't like it or not. You know, you got to experience it before you say you like it. Uh, so, but I do sometimes feel like, no, let me save you the trouble. You don't need to go that way. That path is broken. <laughs> have, have them give me a call. I, I'll, I'll help you out there. 
Yeah, I th- well, I think a lot of what I want to do in the future years in the place that I have in this village is have a lot more exchange program scenarios where I'm bringing, uh, you know, even people like yourself who have played the game, they saw the game isn't really for them, and they're looking for something else. And then to come back and share the story with the people who are on the edge of uh, the temptation of that game. And I mean, it really has an impact. I have another friend who um, grew up in India. He's been in Canada now for probably 15 years or so. And he came back to India for a year or so recent, a few years back. And he came up to the village where I live. And he repeated a lot of the same sentiment that I was trying to share with these people. But one, because he's a man. Two, because he's Indian. He went, he did the American dream and came back to tell that it's not all that. And it had an impact on them. They were like, wow, you know, because um, we all can see like a typical immigrant scenario in America. When you first land up here, it's hard. It's not like you're just going to come here and make a lot of money. And they think that um, when we just look at exchange rates and we say, okay, now the rupee is about 70 to the dollar or whatever, um, they think, wow, that's a lot. But when a chai on the street is five to ten rupees, but a chai on the street in New York or a coffee on in New York is like two dollars. Yeah. So yeah, there's um, that's a big issue also. I love I love that idea that you just you just threw out there. They like an an exchange, a knowledge exchange, an experience exchange facilitating that kind of thing is that's really attractive to me and and now you're welcome that, well, <laughs> you and, and maybe and so maybe your first podcast could be interviewing me you know to to that effect. all right why would you want to come yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's a good one so i mean we've been we've been going for a couple hours now and i mean we were originally going to yeah. just do one so we could tie it up but i the last question i want to ask you is what suggestion do you have for someone like myself? And when I say someone like myself, I mean, you know, someone who's in the Western civilization that recognizes that we, we need to turn inward for, for any sense of peace and satisfaction. Like the, the peace and satisfaction is going to be from turning inward yet here I am in Western civilization, constantly bombarded. I, I am interested in going over to India and, and who knows where that will be, but what what suggestion do you have for those of us who are over here? How do we how do we practice? What where do we turn to to start to explore this stuff? No, this is great questions, and these are there's a lot of things I can say. So, for example, I've throughout this interview, I've been drinking coffee and water, and I have to pee, right? So, this is a consumption. This is something that I consume, and it has to be digested and eliminated. In the same way, our culture is outward entertainment. We consume impressions. So if we go for like the second sutra in the yoga Patanjali's yoga sutras, chitta, vritti, nirodaha. Chitta are the impressions 
like chitta vritti, these impressions are the chitta is the mind, vritti are these impressions that are uh, the things that are cruising around our mind. And nirodaha is that kind of like maintenance of that, the control of that, or the elimination of that. There's many different translations. So I now came to understand that in the same way that every day I eat, I have to the following day digest, I have to throughout that day digest what I've eaten and the next day eliminate what I've eaten. If I'm going to have liquids, I have to digest it and eliminate what I've drank in the same way that all the media that we're consuming, and that could be uh, anything that we're consuming in our senses. So the music I'm listening to, the scrolling on the social media, the conversation I've had with someone, uh, the billboards I'm seeing cruising down the highway, everything. Uh, even uh, the nature stuff, all the things that are I'm going that are coming in my ears, going in my eyes, even the vibrations that I feel on my body through uh, the vibes in the room and in environment, all of those things are consumables. Those are things that are coming into our system. So we have to create space in our day to digest and eliminate them as if they're food and liquids. Um, that is our way of mental health. So one thing that I tend to uh, find is having bookends in our day. So I, it's really common, I've seen uh, visiting friends, that it's, uh, as soon as one wakes up, the phone is in their face. They're still under the covers. And, and checking the email, checking their Instagram, who liked my post, and maybe someone messaged me on Messenger, and oh, there's a WhatsApp message, and I'm already, before I've come out of the bed and even had a pee, I'm, I'm consuming impressions. I have yet to even digest what I've uh, had in the dream life, and I'm already feeding the input. So I think a one simple practice is to have like the bookends in the morning and the evening where you have at least an hour, if not more, I'd like to do several hours before you turn on the phone or the internet or the TV or the radio or the Spotify or Pandora, whatever it is, have some time before in between. And I like, uh, I, it's quite popular, I think, when we were in college, this, the artist way, I don't remember who wrote it. It's this practice of um, writing morning pages. And I think, I, it's, I find it difficult to do when I'm living with people and when I'm traveling, unless I'm with people who have that as their practice itself. But like having some time in the morning to just uh, clear the mind of what's happening. I find the biggest obstacle we have as beginning meditators is I've got too much conversation. I mean, I'll be honest, it takes me a half an hour to shut the fuck up in my head. And so when we're talking people meditate for 15 minutes or they meditate for half an hour, no, that doesn't do it for me. I'm just sitting there looking good thinking. I'm not meditating yet, I'm thinking. I'm having a conversation in my mind. I may be making lists of what I have to do today and all that stuff. So I find before I even try to sit down and meditate, I write. Mm. And get all, so that's like going to the toilet. You know, first thing in the morning, you have to pee, you go pee. So first thing after I have my pee and my uh, go to the, uh, you know, the bowel movement, I'm drinking some liquids or whatever, I'm right also because that's the toilet for the mind. Get all that stuff out of the way. In the same way, before I go to sleep, you can do the same practice. Write all the stuff that's going on so that you're not, it's out 
of the head onto paper. It's like artists making an art piece, a painter has that medium or a musician might make some music, whatever means you have, but you have to have a way to purge, eliminate the other things you've consumed mentally. Those are two really big things. Like you could do it in the evening, in the morning. Um, the other thing is karma yoga as a way of service. So most people, when we have, uh, we have bills to pay, we have to work for a living. Time is money. So um, a lot of people say, well, I don't have any time to volunteer. But karma yoga is not necessarily volunteering for someone else. You can turn your all your household chores into karma yoga. So, in, like I used to when I lived in New York, I would when I would clean the house, I used to smoke a bowl, and then I'd turn on the music and I'm dancing and cleaning the house. Like, but now I have certain mantras that kick in automatically out of habit of having cultivated it as a practice. Where, so for example, when I'm cleaning, a Gayatri mantra just kicks in. So I tend to do housework, even just doing the dishes, sweeping the house, doing laundry, whatever it is. You, if we use that as an opportunity for uh, your mantra practice, that's another way to clear the conversation in our mind. And those are things that anybody can do. You don't have to go to a class. You don't have to um, put your mat down. Um, there, you can take the entire day and make it your yoga practice, just being mindful in how like if you see like i'm not sitting in the chair how most people sit in the chair <laughs> so like even you can take your office time and do there are a lot of sitting asanas that you can do um while you're at your computer there's like probably six seven different ways i can sit on the floor and still get office work done so we have to uh, allow ourselves to see that yoga is not um, limited to going to that class at the studio, but can be incorporated throughout the day. Another thing that I find is really useful, um, cooking as a meditative practice. So um, not telling story, say you're cooking with others. It's easy to do when you're alone. You can be silent and doing a mantra while you're cooking. But when you're with others and you're sharing the cooking process, um, I like to not tell stories. Um, and of course you can talk because yeah, pass me the salt, I need that spoon. Oh, where's the frying pan? Like all that kind of basic maintenance things can be discussed. But in terms of like, Food is also an energy transfer. So when, like for example, in India, a lot of yogis will not eat um, something that has not been cooked by them or by a person that they have trained in a particular way of cooking. In ashram kitchens, there are several rules. Uh, se some of like no talking. So we don't talk nonsense when you're cutting the vegetables, when you're stirring the pot, all the things. And also no tasting. And so in the West, we taste as if we need more salt and all that, but it's because we're not mindful while we're in the cooking process. So we don't maybe remember if we put, how much salt did we put, does it need more? So, but what I've found when you're silent or doing a mantra or just present 
in the moment of I am only cooking, then the food comes out perfect. Um, I have one last example of something that I found in contrast that was really made me laugh at myself. Uh, a couple uh, of summer 2017, I was working at a friend's retreat center in the Berkshires, this place that we were, in, we were hoping to meet up. And it was probably my, with definitely my first month working there. And there was a wedding. It was Friday night at the desk. I was working at the desk and all these people checking in. And one girl comes and her family had already arrived and she was uh, the last to check in their big room. And they, she's asking, where is room such and such? And I was on the phone, um, filling out, running someone's credit card for a future booking. And so after I've hung up, and she asked this while I'm on the phone, right? Uh, so I said, one moment. And then I hung up the phone and I'm filling out the credit card receipt uh, before I get into something else and forget what it was I was doing. And then now she's already proceeded to ask other people in the lobby, where's such and such room? And they're all guests, so they don't know. And then her father comes up to the desk and he asks again. And at that point, I had just finished filling out the credit card receipt and I was standing up to go to get the key. And I said, yes, I, I'm, I'm ready now. I will go show, I'll walk her to the room. I just needed to finish uh, this credit uh, card uh, transaction. And as we're walking out the door through the campus to go toward the cottage, I hear him behind me murmuring, what's wrong with these people? They can't multitask? And I just had like, wow, amazing. Because I remember feeling, you know, like and when you write a cover letter for a job, like one of the things in the West that we, uh, um, it, uh, we uh, pat ourselves on the back on as a cultivated skill is multitasking. And I'm laughing at myself going, oh my God, I spent the last seven years trying to do one thing at a time. <laughs> and it was so, just like such a contrast of like, I've really um, made me, I've made myself kind of unfit to live in this society. <laughs> and it's fine. That's great. I'm actually happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so if you guys want, yeah. And another thing I remember in India, like one household I lived at, they were like, they would come, the kid, young people in their teens and early 20s, they would complain to me that I would was doing things very slowly. Oh, let me do that. I can do it faster kind of uh, comments. And I was just like, and at that time I was like, I had left India, I left the States at 35 years old. So at that time I was probably 37. And I said, made a comment to one of them. I was like, no, man, I've been running for 35 years. I'm exhausted. I just want to slow down. Mm. Yeah, I can that. I can definitely relate to that. Well, I appreciate you, you spending some time with me this morning. Uh, well, two and a half hours. It's super. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's great to be um, back in touch. And what I find really good about now twice coming back to the States is um, I don't make a lot of effort to reach out to people, but the people that I end up connecting with, uh, they're the right ones. You know what I'm saying? Like um, as we start to drop, um, you know, when we go on this kind of a path, we're going to find we relate less and less to our older friends, the friends that we've had in different times of our lives. And it's really been fascinating to see with whom I reconnect with 
or meet again or meet for the first time and even meeting someone uh, that i've known before it is always meeting for the first yeah. time it's really fun. yeah i agree um I, it's this is a total western way to close but i i was going to ask you you know are there any so if, if people wanted to follow you or track along with your life and your thoughts do you, do you have any any hooks that you want to throw out there for for people who want to follow along with you after listening well my social media handle and pretty much the things that i'm kind of active on mostly instagram which just feeds the facebook so it's kind of similar content and then i have a soundcloud as well that now that I'm back in the States and I have good internet connection, I might start putting more things up, but the, all of those are relatively local. And so I also have the domain relativelylocal.com. And it's ironic because it's a domain that I got in the 90s when I was first learning web design. And only in the last eight years does it really make sense to me. <laughs> I don't know where that name came from back then, but now it makes complete sense. Um, so yeah, you can follow me on those. Things. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll put those in the notes, um, of, of the conversation. It's, it's really great cool. having, having being, being able to reconnect, connect for the first time after, after so many years. And I, maybe the, the first chance that we'll actually meet face to face, uh, we'll, we'll be over in India. That would, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah, so long as I'm back there, you you have open invitation, and I try my best to be a good, solid tour guide and save foreigners from first-time foreigners <laughs> from a lot of the trouble I went through navigating and make your trip a lot easier. You won't get ripped off. You won't get sick. <laughs> you know, like all that stuff. Thank you. you. Won't get lost. Well, thank thank your yeah. sister for for me for for sharing you with me, and yeah. um, I'll I'll cut you loose. But um, great. Nice. Great catching up with you, Nicole. Excellent. Om Namo Narayan. See you soon. <laughs>